Welcome to Snazzy Stories. Put some pepper in thy step and lend an ear to the terrific tales of the past. Welcome to Snazzy Stories. If you would like to keep the storytelling alive, please go to patreon.com slash snazzy stories and donate to my storytelling adventure. Also subscribe to my podcast, Snazzy Stories on iTunes or on many other podcast apps or go to snazzystories.com. Today's story deals with the LDS pioneers coming to Utah because today, July 24th, is Pioneer Day. And it's Utah's state's day. It is the 172nd anniversary of the saints reaching the Salt Lake Valley in 1847. Brigham Young's first scouting party came into the valley on July 22nd, actually. But Brigham Young himself did not get into the valley until two days later because he had been bitten by a tick, and so he was very sick. But when his wagon was driven into the Salt Lake Valley by Green Flake, he got up from his sick bed um, from the back of the wagon and said, this is the place, drive on. And then after that, he, as well as many other people, went back from their own personal scouting party. Their first party went back to bring thousands of more Mormons into the Salt Lake Valley. And thus we have the state of Utah that has grown to be something that is quite amazing. Um, of course, I'm from Utah, so I am a bit biased, right? But we do have a wonderful state here. However, I would like to point out that we have this wonderful state because of the people who settled Utah. However, um, Pioneer Day may not be as celebratory to other people in Utah because of the mere fact that when the Mormons came here, other people's perspective of them was not quite celebratory. It was not happy. Uh, the Native American people, this was their homeland for thousands of years. And, and unfortunately for them, the LDS people coming here and making this their own home was detrimental to the Native American people that had already been living here for thousands of years previously. And so that in itself, I think, gives a different perspective to Pioneer Day because it was almost like the beginning of the end for the Native American way of life because once the saints came in and began to settle, uh, and they did, there was a lot of conflict with the Native American people and the Mormon people. And then the miners came in with the mining industry the mining boom, and then the railroad uh, with that as well. And so that's a kind of a different perspective for Pioneer Day. Uh, yes, we celebrate it as Utah because it, we've grown to become this wonderful state. But on the flip side of that, there's also a negative side to that to the decimation almost of, of a culture. And unfortunately, we didn't feel like we could we could have a balance between the two. And, and so that is kind of a different perspective to Pioneer Day. But I don't want to take away from also that the pioneers that traveled here were quite amazing people. And it's amazing to me, it always is, what people are able to do with their lives and what they are able to accomplish because of what they believe. So today I actually wanted to tell you three stories from pioneer journals from three different pioneers traveling west to be in their safe haven of Zion or what they believe to be their safe haven of Zion. And by doing so, I would actually like to read some journal entries because these people can tell their stories, I think, a bit better. And their voice comes through in these stories better than I could tell it. So the first one, I would like to read a journal entry from Fanny Fry Simmons. And she actually left from England with her sister and her brother. Her dad 
was missing, and he believed people believed him to have disappeared at sea, and so he was presumed dead. And the mother actually stayed there and did not travel with them. Uh, she would come later, uh, but they wouldn't see her again for five years. Now, Fanny was 16 years old uh, at the time of her journey, and she says, quote, I could not describe my feelings while these preparations were going on. It seemed that I was in a complete daze or dream from which I expected to awaken and find it all a delusion. My feelings at this time can better be imagined than described. Mother had her photograph picture taken and gave one to each of us, and it was a prize to me, for it was five long years before I saw her again. We had one slight storm lasting only six hours, just strong enough to rock the boat nicely. I remember Jimmy Bond, for he was such a jolly fellow. His wife was lying sick in her berth. He was kneeling at an unlashed trunk when the ship began to rock. It pushed him under the berth and back again in quick succession, and he was singing all the while. Here we go, there we go again. The trunk following him each time. It was quite laughable to those looking on, but not, I suppose, for Jimmy. Well, we started from Florence, Nebraska on the 7th of June. That memorable day, I shall never forget in this life. We traveled three miles the first day. Brother Coltrane pulled the cart in my place, and I walked beside him. He felt so sorry for us because he knew what was before us, and we knew nothing of it, he having just made the journey. There were 58 hand carts with an average of three to a cart. Our rations when we started was a pint of flour a day, and we had some bacon and soap. These items soon gave out. We had to take a cold water wash for the want of a vessel to warm the water in, and not having soap, we were worse than ever. At the Elkhorn River, my feet were so swollen, I could not wear my shoes. Then, when the swelling went out, my feet were so sore from the alkali that I never had on a pair of shoes after that for the entire journey. After a while, we recovered our usual spirits and enjoyed ourselves evenings around camp visiting each other with singing and other amusements. There was one song we would sing which would make the shivers creep over me. Do they miss me at home? Do they miss me? It would be an assurance, most dear, to know at this moment some loved one were saying, I wish he was here. To know that the group near the fireside were thinking of me as I roam. Oh, it would be a joy beyond measure to know that they missed me at home. I recollect one day the captain put me to a cart with six people's luggage on and only three to pull it. A woman, a lad of 16, and I, 17. And there was nine days bread. All grown people were allowed 20 pounds of luggage apiece and their cooking utensils besides. That made quite a load for us. I know it was the hardest day's work I ever remember doing in all my life, before or since. We had to pull up quite a long hill, and a part of it was steep. In climbing, we got behind one of the teams for the oxen to help us, for it was all we could do to keep it moving. Captain Rowley came up and called us lazy, and that I did not consider we were at all. While pulling this heavy load, I looked and acted strange. The first thing my friend Emmy knew, I had fallen under the cart, and before they could stop it, the cart had passed over me, and I lay at the back of it on the ground. When my companions got to me, I seemed perfectly dead. Emmy could not find any pulse at all, and there was not a soul around. They were, she thought, all ahead, so she stood thinking what to do when Captain Rowley came up to us. "'What have you got there, Emmy?' he said. "'Oh, my, Fanny is dead,' she said. It frightened him, so he got off his horse and examined me closely, but could not find any life at all. 
He asked Emmy to stay with me, and he would go and stop the company and send a cart back for me, which he did. When I came to myself, my grave was dug two feet deep, and I was in a tent. The sisters had sewed me up to the waist in my blanket, ready for burial. I opened my eyes and looked at them. I was weak for some time after. I did not fully recover during the rest of the journey. Through it all, I found I had a great many friends in the company. On the morning of the fourth day after camping, one of the brethren related a dream he had had that night. He told us that the church teams would come that day, and just before we could see them, we would hear a gun fired, and they would come in sight. I think it was in the afternoon that we heard a gunshot, and in a minute the teams came in sight, six in number. Oh, I will never forget that time, especially the next few minutes. They seem so plain to me, even now. I think that some of the faces of the men are stamped on my memory forever. The teams came trotting down the hill. The wagon master decided he would have some fun with us, so he told the boys to shout, Hooray for Pike's Peak, and then drive on past us. They did so. Oh, how our hearts failed us. We had all got out to the road to meet them and had an opening in the circle of carts for them to drive in. Men and women threw themselves on the ground, begging for a crust of their last meal. It was a sight that none who witnessed it will ever forget. The wagon master, poor fellow, was melted to tears. Boys, he said, I can't stand this. Drive in. They drove in, and then we began to scramble into the wagons. Stand back, brethren and sisters, until we can get the horses away, and then we will give you all you can eat. The teamster told us when that was gone to come and get more and eat plenty, that if they had not brought enough, they could send to Salt Lake City and get more. We were to have all we could eat, and we did from that time to the end of the journey. The day we were going over Big Mountain, I was learning to ride horseback, and a nice picture I looked. I can assure you, an old sunbonnet on my head all torn, an old jacket and my petticoat tattered, and my feet dressed in rags. That was my costume. I was riding in advance of the entire company. I saw a wagon coming towards me. I rode on, and the wagon was passing all right. When about passed, I saw some well-dressed ladies sitting in the wagon, and one of them cried, There goes my sister! The next thing I knew, I was in the wagon in my darling sister's arms. Oh, the rapture of that moment! It was blessed to me, I will say. Sarah had arrived in Salt Lake City some time since and got rested, and now brother and sister Eddington were coming with her to meet me and the handcart company. They had heard that the company would camp in the canyon that night, and they had come prepared to stay all night with us and fetch some of us. They brought with them a quarter of young beef, half a lamb, pies, and cakes that I was to divide among my friends. Unquote. That's the story of Fanny Fry. Well, one of her journal entries, and I always find it interesting because she was almost buried alive. And I usually share the story with my students when we talk about the pioneers uh, coming to Utah, and they're always so surprised at a lot of the stories that we talk about, but this one usually they're always very fascinated by. The next journal entry I would like to share comes from Marianne Stuckey-Hafen, and she was born in Switzerland. Quote, on the shore of the North Sea in Holland, we boarded a small ship. We went down to a large room under the deck. The floor was covered with a thick layer of straw, which came in handy as the sea was very rough. It tossed us about until nearly everyone was sick. I remember mother sitting on the floor with her back against the wall, holding the baby and trying to brace herself. 
After a day and a night's travel, we landed at Liverpool, England, or thereabouts. As we walked towards the big sailing ship awaiting us, we were warned by the Mormon elders not to let any stranger carry our bags or children, as some had been stolen and sold. I remember how frightened I was when a lady came to my mother and offered to help with her baby. Here we are, joined by a large company of immigrants from many countries. There must have been several hundred. As we went on board, we were each vaccinated. When we set sail, Uncle John Stuckey had to stay behind as he was sick with smallpox. For weeks, we were on the Atlantic Ocean. As we children played around, sometimes we stood and watched the cooks kill chickens by wringing their necks. This seemed horrible to me. But afterwards, I remember how good the chicken bones tasted that we picked up after the sailors had thrown them away. I remember with pleasure the evening meetings where we enjoyed the sermons of the elders and listened to the Mormon hymns, which I loved even as a child. One afternoon while we were playing on the deck, one of the sailors pointed out a mermaid. I looked but could see only what seemed to be a lady's head above the water. The sailors told how mermaids would come up to comb their hair and look into a mirror. They said it was a sure sign of a storm. Sure enough, there arose a great storm the next day. The waves came up like mountains and broke over the deck. We were all ordered under deck, and the water splashed on us as we went down the steps. All night the storm raged. Our ship tossed about like a barrel on a wild sea. Two large beams or masts broke off, and we were driven many miles back. We were so frightened that we did not go to bed, but stayed in a group with the elders praying for safety. Though the captain cried out, We are lost! We did not give up hope. We had been promised a safe voyage. The next morning, the sun came up bright and clear. We all gave thanks to God for our deliverance. The ship was repaired, and we had pleasant sailing the rest of the way. At last, we saw the lights of New York City. How the people did shout and toss their hats in the air for joy. I remember best my first meal on shore because we were served with good light bread and sweet milk. After long weeks of hard tack and dried pea soup, this was a happy change. On our trip to the Missouri River by train, I remember that Brother Whitwer had an accordion and harmonica to help pass the time. When we reached Florence, Nebraska, near present-day Omaha, we were forced to stop for a while because there were not teams enough to take us across the plains to Salt Lake City. The men set to work making hand carts, and my father, being a carpenter, helped to make 33 of them. Ours was a small two-wheeled vehicle with two shafts and a cover on top. The carts were very much like those the street sweepers use in the cities today, except that ours was made entirely of wood without even an iron rim. When we came to load up our belongings, we found that we had more than we could take. Mother was forced to leave behind her feather bed, the bolt of linen, two large trunks full of clothes, and some other valuable things which we needed so badly later. Father could take only his most necessary tools. Our company was organized with Oscar O. Stoddard as captain. It contained 126 persons with 22 handcarts and three provision wagons drawn by oxen. We set out from Florence, Nebraska on July 6, 1860 for our thousand-mile trip. There were six to our cart. Father and mother pulled it. Rosie, two years old, and Christian, six months old, rode. John, nine and I, six, walked. Sometimes when it was downhill, they let me ride too. The first night out, the mosquitoes gave us a hearty welcome. Father had bought a cow to take along so we could have milk on the way. At first, he tied her to the back of the cart, but she would sometimes hang back, so he thought he would make a harness to have her pull the cart while he led her. 
By this time, Mother's feet were so swollen that she could not wear shoes, but had to wrap her feet with cloth. Father thought that by having the cow pull the cart, Mother might ride. This worked well for some time. One day, a group of Indians came riding up on horses. Their jingling trinkets, dragging poles, and strange appearance frightened the cow and sent her chasing off with the cart and the small children. We were afraid that the children might be killed, but the cow fell into a deep gully and the cart turned upside down. Although the children were under the trunk and bedding, they were unhurt. But after that, father did not hitch the cow to the cart again. He let three Danish boys take her to hitch to their cart, when the Danish boys each in turn would help father pull our cart. After about three weeks, my mother's feet became better so she could wear her shoes again. She would get so discouraged and downhearted, but father never lost courage. He would always cheer her up by telling her that we were going to Zion and that the Lord would take care of us and that better times were coming. Even when it rained, the company did not stop traveling. A cover on the handcart shielded the two younger children. The rest of us found it more comfortable moving than standing still in the drizzle. In fording streams, the men often carried the children and weaker women across on their backs. The company stopped over on Sundays for rest, and meetings were held for spiritual comfort and guidance. At night, when the handcarts were drawn up in a circle and the fires were lighted, the camp looked quite happy. Singing music and speeches by the leaders cheered everyone. I remember that we stopped one night at an old Indian campground. There were many bright colored beads in the anthills. At times, we met or passed by the Overland Stagecoach with its passengers and mailbags and drawn by four fine horses. When the Pony Express dashed by, it seemed almost like the wind racing over the prairie. At last, when we reached the top of Emigration Canyon overlooking Salt Lake on that September day, 1860, the whole company stopped to look down through the valley. Some yelled and tossed their hats in the air. A shout of joy arose at the thought that our long trip was over, that we had at last reached Zion, the place of rest. We all gave thanks to God for helping us safely over the plains and mountains to our destination. Unquote. The last journal that I would like to read from is Alma Elizabeth Meinier Felt's journal entry, and she is from Sweden. Quote, In 1861, father and mother sold our lovely home in Sweden and came to Utah. At Liverpool, England, we embarked on the Monarch of the Sea, a very old and rickety ship and entirely unseaworthy. The sea was so rough and stormy that the waves washed over the top of the deck. When the people were frightened, the captain said, We'll land in New York, all right. We've got Mormons on board, and we always get through when we have Mormons. On its return voyage, the monarch of the sea, loaded with cargo, sank, but the captain and the crew were saved. There were a lot of sailors on the boat, and they were so good to me. A Negro cook who had his kitchen on the upper deck was very kind-hearted and generous. He used to give me prunes, dried apples, raisins, and sometimes cookies, and often a little bowl of soup. I was on deck frequently and knew all the sailors and the cook. Sometimes he used to sneak some soup down to the immigrants in the steerage because he felt so sorry for them. The captain caught him at this, and he was put in jail. The jail was on the upper deck, and I can remember that I used to see his black fingers over the bars through the high opening of the door. One day he died. They told me the captain had starved him to death. The body of my friend, the Negro cook, was brought into the kitchen where it was sewed up in a sheet. Then they put him on a long board, carried him to the side of the boat, and slid him into the ocean. I was the chief mourner because he had been so good to me. 
One day my sister was on deck and one of the sailors who was up on the mast dropped one of the iron spikes on my sister's head and the blood was streaming onto the deck. The poor boy did not mean to do it, but some of the officers started to beat him. My mother came up on deck, elbowed her way through the crowd to the boy and said, you leave him alone. He never meant to hurt my child. Although she could not speak the English language, she made herself understood in Swedish by her actions. They all let him alone, and he was very grateful to my mother. Castle Garden, New York, was the dumping ground for all kinds of cargo, and it was also crowded with emigrants. The floor was greasy and dirty. Here we had to make our beds on the floor, as did all other emigrants. Mother spread out the quilts and bedding, and we all lay down in a row, the children and mother and father. There were sacks of brown sugar at our heads. My little brother was sleeping next to me, and in the night he awoke and whispered, Alma, there is a hole in the corner of the sack, and I'm going to have some of the brown sugar. We had not had any sugar or candy all the way over, so we got a spoon out of the box and had all the brown sugar we could eat. In the morning, we were so sick. We did not care for brown sugar after that. We traveled by train to Omaha, Nebraska, where we started our long journey with 80 wagons in our train under the direction of Captain Murdoch. One night we traveled all night long. The Indians were so bad that they had stolen a woman from a train ahead of us. So we walked all through the night to escape them and get past their camps. This night it was very difficult for my father to keep up with the wagon train. He kept going slower and slower because of his rheumatism. I kept hold of his hand and tried to help him as much as I could. Finally, he could not keep up with the train any longer and told me to keep hold of the last wagon and continue on, and he would catch up with us later when we camped. He was finally left behind. Soldiers were camping in the hills and had a big bonfire. Father mistook this for our camp and went in that direction. When he got there, he was surprised to see so many soldiers. He did not know how they would accept him. They asked him what he could do, and he said he could play the violin. So they had him play all night long. In the morning, one of the men brought him to our camp just as we started out to travel on. Mother had cried all night because she was afraid the Indians had taken him and she would never see him again. We all thanked our Father in Heaven that he was with us again, for the train would have had to start on without him. It was too dangerous to wait for anyone. After three and one-half months walking over the hot desert, up the rugged hills, and down the hills and canyons, we finally came out of Emigration Canyon, dirty and ragged. When I saw my mother looking over this valley with the tears streaming down her pale cheeks, she made this remark, Is this Zion, and are we at the end of this long, weary journey? Of course, to me as a child, this had been a delightful pleasure jaunt, and I remember it only as fun. We children would run along as happy as could be. My older sisters used to make rag dolls as they walked along for us little children to play with. But to my mother, this long, hot journey with all of us ragged and footsore at the end and the arrival in the valley of desert and sagebrush must have been a heartbreaking contrast to the beautiful home she had left in Sweden. But to me and to my mother, the gospel had been worth all it had cost." Unquote. Now, those are just three of the thousands of journal entries that people wrote with the journey of their lives and coming into the Salt Lake Valley and then settling all over Utah. Brigham Young sent people all over Utah to settle. It ended up being that 70,000 
saints ended up coming into Utah by 1869. And then not only saints were coming, but the mining industry was booming. And so miners were coming into Utah, and there were people of all different religions coming into Utah, different lifestyles coming into Utah. And then the railroad brought even more people. And the settlement of Utah is extremely important, obviously, to the culture that we have now. But we also don't want to forget the culture of the Native American people who had been here for thousands of years previous and that they also contribute to what Utah is today as well. Thank you for listening to Snazzy Stories. Come back again where everyone has a story.